0: Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn
1: the f*** up. You do not have to be boring in B2B to be successful. I think too often I've had CEOs say, well, we sell to fintech or we sell to HR, we can't have fun. There's no fun to have in HR or a chief human resource officer can't have fun. They want really serious, formal marketing. And I've seen the exact opposite be much more successful. I think at the end of the day, we are marketing to humans and to people. So. Really, there is no difference in B2B and B2C when it comes to the buyers. They are people at the end of the day. So that is the hill that I would die on. And really, it's what this episode is all about. Stop running boring marketing, period. Full stop.
0: What's up? We have the man himself, Mark, aka Meeting Mark on the (laughs) podcast. Um, What's up?
1: Thank you for joining. Hey, what's going on, Daniel? Thanks for having me. Excited for this one.
0: I wanted to start off and ask you a question about how did you get into marketing?
1: So it's one of those interesting stories as, as most people have. I was on the path to go do law school and do my JD MBA and was shadowing a few lawyers that were fairly miserable and I realized that that was not the play for me. Um, my dad had been a telecom exec engineer turned marketer his whole life had scaled a few agencies and had worked with him, you know, since I was a kid. And it was one of those decisions where I was kind of looking at maybe an academic path as a professor or going into mergers and acquisitions in law. And I was just like, nope, don't want to do that. Going to go have some fun and get creative. And I guess marketing has kind of been my family for years and years and loved it as a kid. So it felt like the right thing to do and just jumped in two feet first and never looked back.
0: I love it. I love the the family tie. A lot of people have different stories on here. So it's good to hear where yours comes from. But I want to also talk about something that you're really great at is making B2B companies not boring. So how do you think about not making B2B companies boring? Like, What is your thought process behind it?
1: I'm a big believer in channeling inspiration from outside the realm that you play in. I think one of the Most common pitfalls that specifically B2B SaaS companies make is they follow the standard serious decisions playbook or the thing that's been rinsed and repeated for the past 10, 15 years. And they say, this is a formula for growth, so I'm going to go and replicate it. And what happens is you have all these companies, what I call blend into the sea of SaaS. You could take any website, any brand, any messaging, and you could swap them out. And you probably can't even tell what brand it is. Most of them, again, don't tend to stand out. Many of them position themselves as trying to be the best. I was just at speaking at Sastra a few weeks back and I'd say 80% of the booths there had number one in the space. There was literally four players in one category and all of their booths said the number one in this category. And I'm just a huge believer in finding a path to be different and not better and pulling inspiration from B2C, from areas that are outside the space that you play in, taking creative risks and having fun with it. Obviously, we'll deep dive from there. But if you take only one thing away from this is don't replicate the same playbook as everyone else. Otherwise, you're going to look and feel like everyone else and you're going to end up in a feature parody war with someone who may have a completely different technology than you where you don't control the narrative and don't have the ability to really create a moat and differentiate yourself in that market.
0: I love the CSS analogy. I think everybody is just blending in. They're following the best practice model of, and when something's the best practice, it's usually burnt out by then because it's yes. gone to mass market. But I want to talk about with you, what are two to three things someone could do to stand out as a B2B brand?
1: The two to three things that I always recommend to the companies you know that I advise are, number one, Really focus on finding a way where you can connect to the social and emotional pains and the side of your audience. One of the best ways to do that is, getting really tactical here, is creative top of funnel video. Many startups, even if you're kind of later stage, Series C to Series D, there's massive opportunity to create really high quality, but low cost production that helps you take the pain points that your buyers feel and turn that into just like really great creative top of funnel video. So one of the best brands that has done this was a company called Sandwich, they're a video production agency, company called Descript for podcasts, and they created a really great series of videos on how to start a podcast, really funny stuff. Another one that I recommend for inspiration is from a company, no longer a business called Sales Mesh created a really funny explainer video about CRM in the context of a therapy session between a seller and the CRM. So number one, I'd say is creative top of funnel video. One explainer can be chopped up into seven, 15, 30, 45 second clips that you can use across your entire funnel. And it's a great way with paid and organic to get your message across in a funny way that helps tell your story. The second thing that I always recommend is building a media arm. And I know, obviously, you know, in our conversations and time working together, media is king. And there's a reason why companies like HubSpot acquired the hustle and that there are larger players in the space looking to embed media arms into their SaaS orgs. I'd highly recommend creating a weekly virtual event, a podcast and having a unique challenger point of view where you can start to actually create your narrative in the market and something that helps you really position yourself, like I said, as different and not better. The third thing is what I like to call the risk gauntlet. And I think too many companies, when they're planning, they're three quarters, four quarters out in advance. They plan all of their campaigns and they don't leave a lot of room to ideate. So, what I like to do is I have a backlog of what I call growth and demand and ideas, where we crowdsource from internally our advisors and really just looking at what other companies are doing in the space, usually widely outside of B2B, and would allocate about 20 to 30%. Of our budget and time to test new ideas of some of these the ones that have been really the most impactful have been ones where we weren't focused on measuring roi it was just a great brand play or a great strategy play and i'll give you some quick examples back at a company where i used to lead marketing at cold Dooley, we created a hot sauce sale show which was a play on a popular youtube series where we brought on really well-known c-suite leaders in the revenue space and had some of the world's hottest hot sauce from there, that that kind of piggyback to a place where we partnered with the chain smokers and actually created the custom hot sauce together and ran some giveaways and built merch. So when you start to think about getting really creative, look for inspiration in B2C if you're a B2B company, uh, make sure you have a gauntlet to test ideas, go big in building your media arm, investing in creators and the ability to really share your message. And I'd say if you do one tactical thing, really great top of funnel video, that focuses on the social and emotional pains, those would be my top three.
0: One of the greatest challenges that I've seen with executing something like this is balancing the leadership's needs for revenue versus doing a brand play for this. So, how do you how do you overcome the challenge of saying we need to deliver revenue? This, this campaign does not deliver an ROI. How do you think about that?
1: The two things that I usually counsel leaders on in this situation is one, you got to focus on the long term. A lot of marketers in many ways, if they're dealing with a leadership team that may have been jaded by past marketing that didn't drive immediate results, could have been a failure of the leadership team itself. Brand and building brand and building a media arm is not something that you get results on on day one. But what you do start to see is you can look at some of your key revenue metrics to see what the influence looks like. So I'll give you a great example. People listening to podcasts. Podcast attribution without direct link link clicks is quite difficult, right? Same with building content on social organically, but you know it's the right thing to do. And often leaders tend to throw out common sense when they're thinking about attribution. But what we really started to see with some of the companies that you know, I'm advising in that I've worked for is when you look at key metrics as in sales cycle length, win rate, what your average contract value is, you can start to actually monitor these over time and look at your funnel metrics and see, hey, what am I seeing after people have listened to the podcast? And a really simple change that I recommend any business makes is have a required form field of using a form or your chat bot that says, where did you hear about us? You can start to actually bucket these from podcasts, from newsletter, from areas that typically have challenging attribution. Because what tends to happen is someone probably listened to a podcast, maybe attended your event, came to see you in person, and then they go and search your name and click and book a demo. Do you know what's getting attributed to that is Google search. But do you know what did all of the hard work is the media arm that you built. So I think a lot of companies get a kind of a false signal. So really creating visibility with leadership around, there are easy ways to get a sense of how you're driving value. The second most critical piece here really is just investing in helping your leaders understand the long-term play. Give you a good example, and this is always my go-to. You look at the revenue intelligence space. A few years ago, there were probably 15 players, including Chorus and Gong, if any of you are familiar, and they all pretty much had the exact same product. Uh, but Gong really had a smart team and invested in building a brand, building a media arm, and building a path to create themselves as different rather than better. And you look at their primary competitor at the time who was Chorus, they were recently acquired for like $750 million, where Gong now are on a path to a multi-billion dollar IPO. And the difference was they invested in brand and building a brand and building a media arm. So I tend to look at companies four leaders and give them an example of how they can start to model based on other success stories and what the principles are that really were the foundation of that new way of building a category and defining that white space in the market. The biggest thing for me is it just comes down to creativity, leadership buy-in, and showing some early wins where people can see those key metrics getting influenced. I think the two things that you said that I
0: think are so important are, where did you hear about us? But also, When people don't realize that branded search key terms, like where did branded search key terms come from? It usually comes from a different source. Nobody just hears about your brand. It has to, they heard about it somewhere. So where did, where is that source that they hear about it? And also how to sell internally is just underrated skill marketers don't have or becoming great at communicating inward and marketing inward. I think as important as marketing outward, as marketing inward, as a marketer. So I think those two points you nailed. I wanted to go into a question for you.
1: What is a marketing hill you would die on? Uh, It's a really good question. And before we jump into that, internal marketing, I would say, is probably one of the most key skills that is often overlooked. It's one of those things where if you can't get the company excited about what you're doing, how are you going to get the market excited? And one of the things that I've seen... Make great marketing leaders fail or take longer to be successful is not focusing enough time on really educating the company on what you're doing, the why behind it, and it doesn't have to be a massive make-work situation. One of the biggest takeaways, you know, that I learned early in my career is a 60 second video you can embed in Slack or send a Loom, a few bullet points, or even just having kind of your end of week summary in Notion that you can share with the team makes a massive, massive difference. And if you can scale that down to the executive summary you share with the company, huge benefit, doesn't take a lot of time, but I'd say very few marketers actually do this well. And it's one skill, but I I wish I had invested more in early and will now make sure, you know, as of 10 years ago, it's one of the, the key things. So coming back to, I guess, hills that I would die on, probably the biggest one is really what we're talking about in this episode. You do not have to be boring in B2B to be successful. I think too often I've had CEOs say, "Well, we sell to fintech, or we sell to HR. We can't have fun. There's no fun to have in HR, or a chief human resource officer can't have fun. They want really serious, formal marketing." And I've seen the exact opposite be much more successful. I think at the end of the day, we are marketing to humans and to people. So. Really, there is no difference in B2B and B2C when it comes to the buyers. They are people at the end of the day. So that is the hill that I would die on. And really it's what this episode is all about. Stop running boring marketing, period, full stop. It's funny because people forget
0: the only thing that's different between B2B and B2C is who pays the bill at the end of the day. And usually it's not the person, the company, the buyer, whoever's the credit card is different but B to C, you're usually the buyer, but figuring out who gets a credit card, but you have to inspire and get attention with the first person to even get to those other five people. So, and the way to do that is use ways to connect with them like a human being, not a, a corporate
1: machine. One of the tactical examples before we move on that I'd love to give was, um, you know, earlier in my career in management consulting, we were selling to the CHROs and procurement at big banks across North America. And people kept telling me, we can't have fun in this space. You know, we can't take risks. Everything has to be like incredibly buttoned up. And some of the most successful campaigns we ran were incredibly playful, where you would send a toy or something half complete, no name, no card to the EA of a C-level leader at this bank, use your connections to get in, and you'd follow up the next day and be like, hey, you know, it's Mark. I left the car in your office. Can I have two minutes of chat? And you'd have a great conversation. And we ended up having a lot of these really interesting, playful, unique ways to capture the attention of the c C-suite that no other vendors in the space were using. And even beyond that, we started running... Pizza parties, and we'd have invite only, you know, like murder mysteries and these fun, really unique, like flash experiences that tended to be in many ways kind of like shocking in this financial B2B space. But they were one of the things that actually led us to be one of the number one vendors in the space, competing with people 100 times our size. And at one point, we owned half of the North American financial market in Canada, even though we were a shop with less than 100 people at the time. So the big lesson here is it doesn't matter who you're selling to. If you understand your buyer, you can take creative risks and have some freedom. Don't rule out the assumption that you can't have fun just because the space is quote unquote formal.
0: Also, one big point you made too is as a challenger brand, you can't run the same playbook as the number one brand in the space because they've already captured the market share. So you have to be different. But that gives you advantage because you could take more risks to be different where they are trying to, a lot of number one brands are just trying to stay on top and doing average marketing to do that where you can be risky because you have not much to lose in the space. Yes. I know it's tough to predict the future, but what is a marketing trend you're seeing right now that marketers should jump
1: on? Probably the most important change that I've seen in recent years has been in the the space, in the sales tech space, specifically in the MarTech space. A few years ago, we saw a lot of people talk about sales technology. Then we started to see a shift towards talking about revenue and revenue teams. And now we're seeing, I would say, a larger consolidation in go-to-market. I think that there's been a historical disconnect between the relationship between all the entities within go-to-market. Originally, everyone's heard about the tension between sales and marketing or sales and CS. And I'm starting to see a lot of really smart companies work on a really tight integration among their go-to-market teams. So everything from marketing, sales, operations, CS, working together with one revenue goal, rather than disjointed fractional goals. So when a marketing team historically had an MQL goal, and they celebrated hitting that MQL goal, but it didn't translate into actual closed one revenue, the sales team were saying, hey, but we missed target by 40%. But you have a marketing team over here celebrating. So the biggest trend beyond I would say the media arms being embedded in SaaS brands is more of a unification of the go-to-market unit under one roof, working together really tightly towards one goal. And I tend to see that as what separates some of the fastest performing companies from some of those who are still struggling today, especially in a down market that's been one of the most challenging since back in 08. I also
0: think that one problem revenue teams have is who owns go to market. And usually that depicts a lot of the problems and usually the person who should be owning the decision of go to market is the CEO of the company, not a revenue leader or a marketing leader because that's how you align everybody on the same page. If a chief revenue officer is a marketing person, everybody's gonna go with the CRO if they're owning go to market. The chief customer officer is owning it. Everybody's going to it's going to default to them, the bias on them. So the CEO should be responsible for go-to-market strategy, and then everybody should fall in line with the same goals. Um, that's where I see a lot of problems in a lot of companies too.
1: Yes, having leaders own that and set direction is one of the most critical pieces for two reasons. One, I've seen so many companies where there's disjointed strategic execution. I'll give you an example. You have one team building a product-led motion. You have another team who are running a sales-led enterprise cycle. Then you have a community-led motion, and they're all working on these disjointed goals that aren't really like coming together where one plus one can equal five. And when you have the CEO set the vision for go-to-market and everyone is on the same page, they're all working in this harmonious path where everyone's efforts, again, have more exponential impact when they come together and they're working as one. It's like when you have a really tight segmentation strategy, really deep understanding of your persona and what your ideal customer profile is, you can focus. CEO setting go-to-market and bringing those units together under one goal It's probably the one thing that I see separating, again, like winning SaaS brands from those that, again, may not be as successful right now in this down market. If someone was starting
0: their marketing career right now And they came to you and asked you for advice, what's something you would say to them that they will thank you five years later for?
1: The most important thing that I did early in my career was I knew that I didn't know. And I think bringing some of that Socratic wisdom into it is probably the most important and helped really accelerate my career in a few different ways. So I joined a number of marketing and revenue communities early in my career. And I really created probably one practice that set me up, not only for the network that I have today, but some of my great friends and mentors. So if someone new in their career was doing one thing, this is like the one piece of tactical advice I would give them. Surround yourself with people who have been there before, who have really deep expertise in specific areas that you're interested in learning from, and get them to help you in one area. Be deeply accountable as a mentee to that person. And here's the path exactly in the kinds of the scripts that I use to do it. So I joined this community called Revenue Collective, now Pavilion. Pavilion is sort of a community for go-to-market leaders who are looking to be able to have essentially um, shared learnings and speak about challenges and opportunities with each other. And every week there would be a, a ton of new CMOs and leaders joining, announcing themselves So every Friday, I would put a block on my calendar for 30 minutes in the morning. And depending on where they were located, I used a Chrome extension um, that helps you essentially write like um, macros, or like in one key, you can send kind of a, a script. But rather than just sending like a blanket invitation to anyone, I would have them built out in a few different layers. The first one was based on location. So if someone was in all the key cities, New York, Los Angeles, wherever it was, Um, Vancouver, Toronto, I would have kind of my original template that would mention my favorite restaurant or something that I'm doing there in a few months. I would see what that person posted about. If they said, hey, my name is Sarah. I'm a CEO over at X company or I'm a CMO at Slack just joined. Here's my area of expertise. I would then say, you know, hey, Sarah, I saw you're from Toronto. You know, my favorite restaurant is A, B and C. I'm going to be there in a few weeks would love to ask you a few questions about X, seem like you're really passionate about that area, you know, open for a virtual coffee. And I had these built out for all the major cities. I would inject my personal ask, I'd send them a connection and I'd follow up in a few weeks with a voice note. And I probably had a 95% success rate on these connections because it felt personal, it felt unique. And very few people actually took the time to connect one-to-one with people. And even as, you know, an early marketer, new in SaaS, I was able to connect with some of the best CMOs in the business who became advisors, friends, and I could text them and I had radical accountability where if they said, I will help you with X, I would follow up with them a week later saying, here's what I did, here are the results, thank you so much, would you be open to basically continuing to advise or be on kind of my, my bench for support? And again, nine out of the 10 said, yes, happy to help. So if I would only do one thing as a new career in marketing, it would be that because it's going to open so many doors. It's going to create a network for you. And it's really easy to do. You just need to put in the time and effort to do it and know that there are a lot of people who are willing to give back to early marketers in their career. And it's something that even I myself am doing right now. So that would be the one thing, and that's how I did it. Who
0: has inspired you in the marketing space or who are some of your mentors that you leaned on?
1: My number one has been Kyle Lacey. So Kyle Lacey was the CMO over at Lessonly before they got acquired by Seismic. And Kyle had always been someone that I had really respected. Um, you know, Growing up, I had seen a lot of what they were doing from a brand perspective. And the Lessonly brand that Kyle built punched way above their pay grade. When they created their own line of merch, it sold out within literally days because it was so popular. And I think a really good signal as a brand if you have what I call brand market fit, it's people want to buy your merch. That is probably the number one signal that you have that fit in the market. Um, another one that I'm, I'm a huge fan of that I've been probably following for the past seven or eight years has been Udi, the CMO of Gong. And again, had the pleasure of bringing him on my hot sauce sales show and got to hear about their Super Bowl commercial. They were one of the first brands to get to do that in the SaaS space, which was a lot of fun when we ate some some hot sauce. Probably Andrea Kale, um, CMO over Electric, was really helpful for me in helping to build out more structure around building and scaling marketing teams and how to build budgets. Um, tons of others to list, but those are probably the, the three that I think have had the most impact on where I am today and just how I've thought about marketing. And the last question I have for you is
0: where could people find the Mark John?
1: Uh, Check me out on LinkedIn, Uh, Mark P. Young, send me a connect. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. And yeah, if you have any questions on brand strategy or if you're looking for anyone to advise for your business, always happy to have a conversation. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating It helps bring more marketers into our community.